Mean Old Lion Media presents the history of being black. What up, though? Welcome to the History of Being Black podcast. I'm your guy, Jay Hall. Shout out to all the black people and everybody that's not black because I'm just feeling very much so shout out worthy today. Now, today I got a special guest and I want to get this intro right because this brother right here got a lot of credentials and I want to respect that. So let me let me get my intro game on. I'd like to welcome Dr. Wright, who's a proud graduate of Howard University. I say a proud graduate of Howard University, a proud graduate of Howard University, fellow vice and hello, brother, specializes in African-American studies, U.S. history, global studies, oral history, and popular culture. The full-time professor at Trinity Washington University in Washington, D.C., currently host of Woke History, a new podcast series on National Public Radio NPR One. How you doing, good sir? Hey, I'm good. I'm good. And shout out. You gave me that shout out for Howard, so I got to do it. H-U. Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I was I was keeping that loaded when we was talking earlier. I was like, he don't even know. I'm about to hit him with it. He don't even know. I'm going to bring the smiles out today. <laughs> what school was you in when you was there? Uh, College of Arts and Sciences. Okay. School to see. Yeah. So, College of Arts and Sciences. So you see how things work full circle. Well, it's good to meet you, brother. How you doing? Hey, I'm good, man. Excellent. Thanks for having me. That's good. That's good. You know, we was shout out to my guy, um, our fellow bison brother, my man Ivan, man. He hollered at me and you know, he's always been a good guy. And he was speaking very highly of you and everything that you've been doing with your writings and everything you've been doing with your books and everything. I just kind of want to take it back for a second because, you know, I know I read a little bit of your background, but you take, for example, specializing in African-American studies. Like how does one get to that level of because anybody can say, listen, I'm African-American, I'm black. Why do I need to have this under my belt? Why was that important, significant for you? Yeah. So and just to kind of clear that up a little bit. So my degree um, and I always kind of like this reference to Howard degree, because that's where I did my Ph.D. work. My degree was in history. So the focus was um, U.S. history from really like post-Civil War up to the present. And my minors were Africana, like African diaspora and then public history. Right. So that's really my specialty area. But um, in terms of African-American studies like that, that really falls in the loop as well. Like a lot of the courses I've taught over the years have tended to, you know, have some type of component dealing with history of black people, black culture, racial elements, uh, both in the past as well as contemporary. And I think for me, I mean, you could always know your history. And there are a lot of people who are um, self-taught. And like, shout out to all of those people, because a lot of those people know a lot. I mean, they they read, they go to the bookstore, they go to the black owned bookstores like Sankofa, which is a popular spot in D.C. And they really study up and, you know, they watch the documentaries and, and they know this material. Um, I, I guess just for me, though, since I did have the fortune to go to school and go to the university, like I wanted to just make sure that I studied and work with some of like the smartest and best minds out there and the people who could really expose me to some of the great works from various historians, various scholars who really know this subject matter. So when I do get out there and I talk about it, whether it's, um, you know, in class to my students or if I'm a guest speaker somewhere or just rapping, you know, with you, like, you know, I know my stuff. So, yeah. What exactly are you a doctor of? <laughs> what am I a doctor of? So, again, mm -hmm. um, my degree is in history. So if you look at my title, if someone was to look at my title, would we'll say associate professor of history. So with the classes that I teach, um, and like I said, my specialty coming out of Howard was U.S. history post-Civil War up to the present day. So 
the, the normal, most of the classes I teach will tend to be within U.S. history, be it, you know, I have like the, the typical introduction to U.S. history course. I have some specialty courses such as Civil War and Reconstruction, um, Black women's history, history methods course, which is specific for history majors. Um, but then, like I said, because I do have that minor when I was at Howard in African diaspora as well as public history, I'll have courses that I teach um, like on the civil rights movement, right? Or like a specific course on African-American history. And then uh, hip hop, you know, that's something that I've had a chance to do a lot with as well from an academic standpoint, really going back to my time at Howard. So again, I would just say like my, my specialty is professor of history, but you know, as the, you know, as she said in the bio, I, I could teach like a lot of different subjects and where I, where I am now at Trinity Washington University, they kind of had me doing that. So you may catch me teaching a history course. I may do a political science course. I have a class this semester now called Women in the Law, you know. Um, and then, you know, you may catch me doing a global affairs course as well. So, like I have a course on um, like global hip hop. So. So I was actually just mentioning this on the last episode of the show about how I kind of always grew up somewhat of a history geek. Like mm-hmm. even before I got into school, like I was always a pop culture geek. Was that the same case for you coming up? So my love for history and my love for pop culture, we start with history first. When I was in high school, I had a teacher who really got me hooked on history. Because like a lot of young people, I didn't like history. I didn't like social studies just because it wasn't taught to me in middle school and even my early high school years the best way. They gave us the typical Columbus 1492 Revolutionary War. You have to learn these, you know, war heroes and presidents. And it wasn't something that appealed to me that much, right? But I had a, a teacher named Mr. Lamoff in high school, and I think it was my sophomore, junior year, and we were doing this course called Immigration History. And he was telling us, like, the, the, the narrative and the stories of all of these different groups who came to the United States and why they came to the United States. And that was really interesting to me. And then, like, during the course, he... um he showed us the docu-series Eyes on the Prize, right? Which was like this popular series, yeah. <laughs> right? So anybody who's like really in African-American history probably knows Eyes on the Prize. That was my first time like seeing that, right? And and I knew a little bit about Dr. King, Rosa Parks, some of just the basic stuff you learn during Black History Month um, growing up, but I didn't know anything else. And, you know, while like the African-Americans, obviously we didn't immigrate to this country, but like he, he showed that to us to say, OK, we've been learning about all these groups who came here willing, willingly. And then, you know, you talk about African-Americans and, you know, for most of them, you know, majority of their ancestors would have been brought here by force, you know, on slave ships. And, you know, we learned a little bit about that. And then he started going into like, well, why do we even have a civil rights movement in the first place? And what were these people fighting for? So that's when, like, I really started getting interested in history. And then that that love for history really grew. And, and lucky for me, you know, I have I have, you know, parents who are both educated and I have a dad who was, you know, not a historian by training, but he's someone who really loves history, too, loves political science and politics and, you know, a really smart man. And, you know, he would tell me, you know, those stories and talk about that stuff with me. And, you know, luckily, my grandparents were still alive at the time and they were living down south in South Carolina. So they could tell me about some of the things that I was witnessing watching Eyes on the Prize in terms of the treatment of black people during the Jim Crow era. 
So that's where that passion for history really came from. As far as pop culture, uh, I, I think like I always loved movies, film, uh, television shows, music. Like I always had a passion for that. And, you know, growing up, like that was just like, that was my thing, right? And in, in fact, um, in my first book, not the not the new one on Kanye, but in my first book, I talked about how as a kid, you know, I grew up as an only child. So like the pop culture, the films, especially the TV shows really created like this, this whole world for me in this universe where, you know, all of these different people, um, you know, like, and they were fictional characters, obviously, but all of these different fictional characters, you know, were people that were almost like my friends as a kid because I didn't have brothers and sisters. So I could look at their families and I could look at their stories and that stuff would inspire me. And, you know, I would learn little, little pointers from watching stuff on television. And then obviously the music was really important too. you know, really became the soundtrack of my life. Like it is for a lot of people. And when I got to Howard, um, you know, I was trying to figure out what I was going to do in terms of my dissertation work for the PhD. And there was an older student in the graduate program named Dennis Rogers and he was the president of the grad student council. And Dennis was telling me, you know, hey, what are you interested in? Like, what do you what do you want to write about for your dissertation? And I'm just like, no, I'm not really sure. Like I had done something else when I was doing my master's thesis and I knew I didn't really want to do that for my dissertation. And, you know, somehow we got into talking about hip hop and he's telling me, hey, you know, that would be dope if you did something you know, related to hip hop or you do something with hip hop while you're here at Howard. And that was seen as cutting edge at the time being in the history department, because it's one thing if I was mass comm, mass communications or media studies or even just straight, um, you know, Afro-American studies. Right. But because I was history, people weren't really writing about that stuff or researching that stuff. And following Dennis advice, I was like, all right, let me pursue it. And luckily for me, I had some professors at Howard who were, you know, trailblazing enough to really believe in me and support me. And, you know, I wanted to shout them out, Dr. Elizabeth Clark Lewis, who's still at Howard now, Dr. Emery Tobert, who um, unfortunately passed away. We had this uh, homegoing celebration last month. But like, you know, these people really supported me the whole way through Howard. So they were the ones who said, if you're passionate about hip hop and not just hip hop, but pop culture, then, you know, going to do something with that. And yeah, I wanted to, you know, just kind of like live out that dream. I think that, you know, I tell my students this all the time, do what you're passionate about. I mean, obviously do what's going to allow you to have a career, make money, support yourself, but be passionate about that. And like, if you're passionate about it and you're not just doing it just because somebody says this is what you're supposed to do, I think you're going to, you know, find success because you really care about that topic. And, you know, like you, I love history. I love pop culture. And, you know, I just try, try to find a way to kind of blend the two, um, you know, what I do professionally. Now, I ain't gonna lie to you. When you brought up Eyes on the Prize, yo, I, I got triggered because I remember that used to be the quintessential documentary they would show every February for mm. Martin Luther King's birthday. You know, mm. I don't. And you're right. That was when I think back about it, like. That might have been like my first introduction to what was like a, like a period piece of like what was going on before me as far as being black here in America. When um, where you from again? I, I don't think I got a chance to ask you that. Where you, where you was born and raised? So I was I was born in D.C., born in Washington, D.C., 
raised for the most part in the DMV area, moved around to various parts of, of Maryland, lived in, well, I don't know if, if the listeners are familiar with the state of Maryland, but lived in different parts of the state throughout the years, lived in D.C. Uh, for a period of time as well, uh, had some Baltimore connections. And then I lived in South Carolina for a couple of years when I was really young because my mom, I was mentioning my grandparents, so my mom's family, they're from South Carolina. She's from Sumter, South Carolina. So I have a really strong connection with South Carolina and just like further down south in general. Um, and then my daddy's from, my dad's from California. So I have a little bit of a West Coast connection too. That's what's up. My um, family origin is South Carolina. I was born and raised in Detroit, but I was the only one. My family, everybody else was from South Carolina. So that's what's up. When you think about before you got into this, what was a pop culture or a hip hop moment that you could remember that you first gravitated to, that you could first remember like, yo, this story or this wave is something that I'm really getting. I mean, like, you know, so, you know, without, without, you know, giving away my age, you know, like I, I really was like coming of age during that nineties period. So um, I remember Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, like, I know we got the new Bel-Air that the young people watch, you know, which is, a lot different from the original, but I grew up on the original Fresh Prince of Bel-Air and that was like a, a cool thing for me, man. Like seeing that and, you know, having that little bit of exposure to like hip hop at like a younger age through like Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, through movies like House Party, which is like one of my favorite films when I was a kid growing up. Um, and then like just being a kid, like watching shows like Rap City on BET, watching Big Tigger do his countdown with the different artists come and freestyle. I, I'm, I'm old enough to remember Yo! MTV raps with Ed Lover and Dr. Dre, um, you know, the Arsenio Hall show in Living Color, Martin, New York Undercover. Like all of these shows were like hip hop inspired, you know, it's a lot of hip hop in them. So that was like really like my early entries to hip hop. And then, you know, like I think a moment that really sticks out to me would probably be, um, you know, really like, you know, the whole East Coast, West Coast beef and Biggie and Tupac, Notorious B.I.G., Tupac Shakur, just like that whole moment where it seemed like time stood still, where you had these two brothers who were the pillars of what they did and representatives of their two coasts. And, you know, unfortunately getting getting killed, getting murdered between 1996, 1997. Um, I mean, that, you know, like you remember stuff like that. I hear older folks of, of previous generations say, well, I remember, you know, Kennedy getting assassinated. I remember the Challenger spaceship exploding. You know, I remember all of these different things. I remember the, the Dr. Luke, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. riots or uprisings, I should say, that took place. Right. So for me, you know, and I don't want to compare that moment to, to those, but that was kind of like that moment where I'm like, wow, like these two brothers are like gone. You know what I mean? And it's been other, you know, it's been other moments since then, but that's one that really sticks out to me. No, I mean, you don't have to say it, but it was for me. I mean, that was heartbreaking and the emotional emptiness I felt of their passing and, you know, how I felt when they were alive. Because I was, like you said, coming of age, mm -hmm. being a teenager and listening to them and then becoming an adult and understanding how young they were because they were mm -hmm. older than me then and understanding even having like further heartbreak in it. But, you know, to my mother's generation, you know, they had artists that had passed or left that imprint on them. So it kind of brought me and my mother, you know, together a little bit more. You know, one of the things that excited me 
during that era that you brought up was realizing that there were hip hop writers or people who were writing about this culture. They were documented. And the first thing I gravitated to was the Source magazine. Mm-hmm. And now we always think about what Biggie says, whoever thought hip hop would go this far. And now I'm sitting here, I'm talking to a doctor and you wrote a book mm-hmm. about Kanye West. And I, and I don't think that because social media has been so big, I don't think people still understand how there was a time when hip hop itself, they were trying to get up out of here as a culture. Like get it up out of here is is killing our kids. Now we're talking about their cultural figures. And in your book, Wake Up Mr. West and the Double Conscious of Black Celebrity, that title alone speaks volumes on that. Can you just expound a little bit on that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um and I, I'm gonna kinda like break down the title and the subtitle. So the title, Wake Up Mr. West, could be it could be taken a lot of different ways, right? So Number one, it could be taken, you know, at one point everybody was saying, you know, let's get woke, you know, we're woke, we're woke. Um, And, you know, for, I mean, even still to this day, you know, a lot of people have put Kanye West in that so-called sunken place. You know, people who've seen the movie Get Out know all about the sunken place, right? And, you know, folks thought Kanye had literally fallen asleep, that maybe it was the fame, Maybe it was being married to the Kardashians. Maybe it was his mom's passing. Maybe it's being separated from the black community. Whatever people felt as though Kanye had, you know, really forgotten where he came from and he was asleep and everybody else was waking up. Even when we saw, um, and I talk about this in, in the final chapter of the book, like post 2016, you really see a number of black Black people in general, but especially since we're talking celebrity, black celebrities, whether it's musicians, um, TV, movie people, athletes, a number of them really get involved in like the social movement, um, you know, really kicked off by the Black Lives Matter movement. Right. So you see Colin Kaepernick taking the knee. You see LeBron, Carmelo Anthony, Dwayne Wade, Chris Paul at the ESPY Awards, um, you know, making a stance for social justice. You see a number of other artists getting involved in people making music. And, you know, that really hits, to me, it really hits like a crescendo by the time we get to 2020 with George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor and like just like those worldwide protests. Because if you go back to 2016, it wasn't really popular for like those athletes and those entertainers to do it. They were still, you know, there's a lot of risk involved. I mean, Colin Kaepernick hasn't played a down of football really since then, right? But by the time you get to 2020, you know, it had almost become trendy where everybody was now marching and everybody was getting involved. And still, you know, Kanye was was pretty quiet for the most part. I mean, he did show up to um, one protest in Chicago for George Floyd, and then he ended up leaving because it created so much commotion, you know, with the young people being excited to see him. So he ended up leaving. And then he makes this donation to uh, George Floyd's daughter, Gianna. But beyond that, Kanye was pretty quiet. So, again, you know, some people say, well, all of Black America, you know, had woken up um, after having been asleep, you know, and just being comfortable. But Kanye West was somewhat quiet, right? So you could look at it that way when we say, wake up, Mr. West. You could also look at it from Kanye's, I want to say his graduation, the third album, right, where there's actually a, a song on there that says, wake up, Mr. West. And it's like, wake up, Mr. West, Mr. West, Mr. West. So, like, I got that from there as well, right? With the subtitle, the Kanye West and the Double Consciousness of Black Celebrity, that's really, like, honestly, the heart of the book. 
Um, like, and I tell people this all the time in interviews that, yeah, I wrote this book about Kanye West. It's definitely a biography on Kanye. If you read it and you don't know that much about him, or even if you are a fan and you know a lot about him, you're going to learn a ton about Kanye. It's a biography, but like Kanye is really being used more so as a case study on like this bigger question of black celebrity in America. Like what does it mean to be a black celebrity in America? Right. And how does this tie in with this whole notion the double conscious. So what I want to do, I just want to kind of read a quote that I always use whenever I'm talking about this. So the term double consciousness is associated with W.B. Du Bois. He's one of our most noted scholars. Um, I mean, black scholars, but scholars in general. He's the first person, first African-American person to receive a Ph.D. from Harvard University, uh, you know, grew up um, in Great Barrington, Massachusetts, he was the counter to the um, the great Booker T. Washington. They would have this debate about, you know, what was the best path for African-Americans to really achieve equality and to achieve empowerment coming out of the Civil War? Because, you know, we have the Civil War. For anyone who doesn't know, you know, we had the Civil War. It was fought over slavery, you know, regardless of those who want to tell you it was about states' rights and other things. The, at the heart of all of that was the slave issue. And the war comes to a conclusion. Um, and then we have what's called a reconstruction period from 1865 to 1877, when we're rebuilding the, the country as we know it. We're bringing the South, the Confederate States of the South back into the Union. But then we also have this so-called emancipationist view of that reconstruction. And what that means, you hear the term emancipation coming from Emancipation Proclamation, right? We think about Lincoln. Uh, freeing slaves that were in the rebelling states and the Confederate states, right? And then with the 13th Amendment, slavery comes to a conclusion, you know, everywhere in, in the United States. And then we know about Juneteenth as well. But um, during this Reconstruction, Black people are getting colleges. Black people are opening banks. Um, you know, Black people get the vote. Well, Black men, I should say, because women don't get the vote just yet, but Black men get the vote. And you have people running for office, and it's, you know, it's, it's progress. A lot of change is happening during this time period. And unfortunately, it only lasts for 12 years due to a number of reasons. And when that comes to a conclusion, you know, shortly after we get Jim Crow. So as we're entering the 20th century, you know, again, like this, this rise of the birth of civil rights, people tend to think of the civil rights movement as something that started with Emmett Till's murder, right? Or with the... Um, Brown v. Board of Education decision integrating schools or with Rosa Parks and the Montgomery bus boycott, right? That's one phase of the civil rights movement. But in history, we talk about a, a long civil rights movement. So we could really say as we're entering the start of the 20th century, the, the 1900s, that's really when we see the birth of this longer civil rights movement that we're still technically in even now in 2022. And two of the leaders at the forefront of that were Booker T. Washington and Du Bois. And Washington, you know, he had been a slave, you know what I mean? So he had a very different experience from the boys. And Washington was the one, you know, who founded Tuskegee Institute. And he was the one saying that, you know, black people should take those skills that they already developed from slavery and they should use that to build themselves up. You know, they should be all about self-help. You know, we don't necessarily need to focus on civil rights and pol political rights and things of that nature. And the boys who was coming from, a complete, you know, other end of the spectrum because of his upbringing, you know, again, 
you know, educated at Harvard, you know, studied abroad as well overseas. You know, he had a different outlook. And, you know, he's the one saying that, well, black people need to fight for their civil rights now. We need integration now. He was one of the founders of the NAACP. And like I said, he's a scholar and he wrote a number of books. And one of his most famous books and probably the most famous book is called The Souls of Black Folk. Right. And in The Souls of Black Folk, he talks about this notion of the double consciousness. Right. And here's a quote from the book. It says it's a a peculiar sensation, this double consciousness, this sense of always looking at oneself through the eyes of others and measuring one's soul by the tape of a world that looks on in amused contempt and pity. Whenever feels his two-ness, an American, a Negro, two souls, two thoughts, two unreconciled strivings, two warring ideals in one dark body whose dogged strength alone keeps it from being torn asunder, right? So that's that's what the double consciousness means. Now, how does that relate to Black celebrities? So I say this in the book. I say the celebrity's privileged status does not make him or her immune from the added cost of being Black in America, nor does their fame make them immune from the so-called double consciousness. There's a double burden of being too Black for some mainstream, meaning mostly white audiences, and not Black enough for some Black audiences. It's no secret that Americans are obsessed with celebrity culture, right? Um, and, you know, and that's, that's true of all Americans, regardless of your race or ethnicity, right? But in the Black community, celebrities have always had a special status because their success and their mainstream acceptance was seen as a way to uplift the race. As a result, Black celebrities are often treated like heroes, role models, trendsetters, and social activists. Likewise, their downfall was viewed as a stain on the entire race. Black celebrities have often had to choose between the role of being a spokesperson for their race or a builder of personal brand endorsed by individuals outside of and with little vested interest in the Black community. This responsibility can impact every aspect of their life, from choosing where to live, whom to marry, whom to vote for, and and how to use their platform. So again, you know, with the book, we're using Kanye as this case study for this bigger discussion on, like, this, this duality, right, that the Black celebrity has of being this figure Within the black community, usually someone who's coming from the black community, someone who has the power, and we use the term platform all the time now, but someone who has the platform to really use their voice, use their influence, their money, whatever, to, you know, not just do well for themselves, but also shine a light that's going to make the whole race and the whole community look good and uplift the people. But then at the same time, for most celebrities, especially now, because, you know, like at one point with Jim Crow was a lot harder for this. But, you know, now, you know, a lot of your fans are going to be people outside of the African-American community. Right. And and this was true even back in the day, too. I mean, a lot of their fans, the the older celebrities had non-black fans, too. But the difference was while they may have had non-black fans in the 20s and 30s, they were still treated like N-words once they got off the stage or once they got off the playing field. Whereas today, you know, they have the non-Black fans. And because of that, it allows them a certain privilege that, you know, most African-Americans don't, you know, don't have. Right. So, again, it's this this challenge of, you know, like I, you know, how, how should I play this? You know, how should I use my platform? How should I use my voice if I speak up for Black issues? Um, am I being too black? Is that going to scare or turn off, you know, my non-black audience if I don't speak up enough on the black issues or if I speak up on issues that run counter 
to what the masses say. And, and in this case, you talk about Kanye West and his politics. You know, if I say stuff like all lives matter and, you know, and I vote for people that most black people don't vote for, you know, does that mean that I'm kowtowing or I'm selling out or I'm trying to just appease, you know, my white fans and just get a seat at the table and just do whatever I can to make money for myself? Am I playing that whole Michael Jordan card of Republicans buy Jordans too? You know what I mean? So that's a lot of the issue that I'm dealing with in this book. And it's looking at, um, you know, Kanye and as, you know, as I'm telling Kanye's story throughout the book, I'm always giving you different examples of celebrities who came before him, those in the past, as well as, you know, his contemporaries as well, to see how does his story and how do the things he's experiencing kind of measure up with what these other celebrities have, have been dealing with. And, and I did that because I realized everybody does not like Kanye West. I mean, like, if I wrote this book 10 years ago, it probably would have been different because Kanye was viewed a lot differently back then. There's one other academic book about Kanye. And for the most part, it was it was an edited book by a bunch of different scholars who wrote chapters for it. And this came out in maybe 2012 or 2013. And for the most part, most of the most of the critiques are pretty positive for Kanye West. There's some, you know, people you know who do have criticism of him. But for the most part, it's pretty positive. Right. So had I wrote this book back then, it you know, would have been received differently. But writing it now where Kanye is such a lightning rod and he's so polarizing, you know, again, I, I realized that everybody may not want to read it. But you know, I, I kind of do this thing with my students where I may I may start class off by playing something that they can relate to. Right. Maybe it's a Migos record or whatever. Right. Just to kind of get their attention. But once I got you. Then I could kind of like start teaching you about some other things that maybe you didn't think you were going to get just from the very beginning. So with this book, yeah, you could see Kanye on the cover. You can start reading about it. You can learn about Kanye. But then along the way, you may learn about a Josephine Baker. You may learn about a Burt Williams. You may learn about a Sammy Davis Jr. You know, you may learn a, a bigger story about Bill Cosby than just the, the basic one that we see on TV today, you know. And, and, and that's what I'm really trying to do here, you know, is to have like this bigger discussion and it's a discussion that I think everybody could like take something away from, regardless of the fact that if you like Kanye, if you like hip hop, if you're 40, if you're 19, if you're 65 years old, whatever. I think it's a little bit in there for everybody. Yeah. In your book, you talk a lot about how um, in America, the addiction we have with celebrity. And you one of the examples you use is um, COVID and how pretty much people really wasn't taking it serious until the NBA players caught COVID and some of the games and the games start getting shut down. And when Tom Hanks and his wife, Rita Wilson had, mm -hmm. you know, caught COVID, then it became this big thing. Why is it like for me personally, I don't necessarily go into Kanye because by the time you do a think piece or, you know, you want to do it like a rant, he's on to something else like mm -hmm. so quickly. Yeah. For you writing this book in the in the time frame that you're writing in, with, on the speed that Kanye is going, why do you feel like Kanye has such an effect? No matter what he says and what he does, like it can't be a simple just ignore him. Yeah. Why is it that he riles up so much attention over and over and over again? I mean, Kanye's one on one. You know, I mean, there's a lot of it's a lot of great MCs. It's a lot of dope. MCs out here. It's a lot of celebrities. It's a lot of cool people. It's a lot of, you know, trendsetters and people who could set the wave. But certain people really stand out more than others, right? It's the reason why Jay-Z is who Jay-Z is. 
you know, why like the OGs and like the, the, the young boys in hip hop respect this man, even though he's pushing 55 years old. Like it's a reason why Jay's still relevant. It's a reason why you talk about basketball players look up to Kobe, look up to MJ, look up to LeBron, right? Like these people are one-on-one. And in Kanye West's case, Kanye is one-on-one, right? One of one, right? So again, yeah, we do have an addiction to celebrity period in this country. And, and, and I talked a little bit about, you know, what the celebrity means for black America, but with Kanye West, I mean, like this guy, and, and most people aren't even really aware of like how much Kanye's accomplished. So like, I always like to just throw this out just to like sh- shine some light on his accomplishments real quick, because I do think it is pretty remarkable. Um, and let me just read some of these, right? So, you know, from a musical standpoint, purely, you know, and it's funny, like, um, I, I don't know if it was Chance the Rapper or somebody's like, like, do May Jesus Walks. Like, we, we get into discussion there, right? So if you're a Kanye West fan and, like, you know Kanye from back in the day, you know Jesus Walks is a phenomenal record, right? But beyond just, like, Jesus Walks, from a musical standpoint, you know, like, just as a producer, before we even get to Kanye as a solo artist, as a producer, you know, this guy was, you know, one of the chief architects of Jay-Z's album, The Blueprint, which came out 2001 on 9-11, September 11th. A lot of people consider that to be maybe his best work or at least his most defining work. Right. You know, Kanye West produced clash of tracks for people like Alicia Keys. You don't know my name. Songs for Ludacris. He did Common's album B. Uh, he worked with Slum Village, with with uh, Talib Kweli, with Most Def. I mean, with a number of key people like Kanye was producing music for these folks, right? That's just him as the producer. Uh, you know, more recently he did Pusha T's Daytona album, right? Then you talk about Kanye West as the artist. And I mean, Kanye has evolved. And we see, we talk about the old Kanye versus the new Kanye. But like Kanye has really evolved. So if we just look at it, you know, the evolution of Kanye West right now is the musician, not so much as the man or, or the businessman, but like just as the musician, you know, you go from being this producer, right? Like the number one producer or like one of the top producers in the early 2000s out there with a Pharrell Williams, right? Or Swiss Beats or Timbaland and some of these other folks to Kanye as the artist. And you have the trilogy. That's the uh, first three albums that Kanye puts out where you get the college dropout, late registration, graduation. You know, three phenomenal albums, right? Because of what they did and like what those albums did was they really bridged like this gap between the so-called backpack hip hop sound versus, you know, along with like that mainstream sound. And it was a, it was a type of music that comes around like at a really interesting period, because if you think about and, and you know, I don't know if, um, you know, listeners really know this, but like if you think about that time period, like 2003, 2004, you know, we talked about Biggie and Pac earlier and, you know, with their death, you know, we see kind of like the end of that so-called gangster rap wave. Right. And that's not to say a lot of times people who don't understand hip hop think that like 90s hip hop was solely gangster rap. And it wasn't. We had Tribe. We had Dayla. We had MC Hammer. I mean, we had a bunch of, of women MCs as well. I mean, hip hop was like very, very diverse in the 90s. But people Think of it as just the gangster part because that's what was dominating on Billboard and on the um, sound scan ratings and on MTV and BET at the time, right? So, you know, with their deaths, then you get Puffy or Diddy, as we know him today, and that whole Bling Bling era, Cash Money Records, Jay Z comes on the scene. Um, 
And, you know, that's kind of like the wave we're going on. But then, you know, we get to the early 2000s and then we kind of get like, you know, a throwback to that old school hardcore gangster image with 50 Cent's to Get Rich or Die Trying album. And that then becomes like, a, a, again, a dominant sound within hip hop music. So Kanye shows up and Kanye's not doing 50 Cent. He's not talking about getting shot. You know, he's not even doing Jay-Z because, again, you know, if you look at Jay-Z in 2001, 2002, you know, Jay is really starting to make that transition, like into the, the businessman that we know him now. But then he was still making a lot of songs just talking about selling crack back in the day and how I went from selling crack to, you know, now, um, you know, like selling rockerware and all of this stuff. Right. Kanye was not doing any of that. Kanye was a suburban kid. Mom was a college professor. Um, and again, like I said, he tapped onto something, right? And people didn't believe in him. That's why if you see the, the Netflix documentary, it was so hard for him to get signed because people didn't, didn't believe in what he was preaching at that moment. But it was really genius, though, like coming in with like something totally different. And again, like I said, merging the backpack rack and the, and the backpack rap and the conscious rap and having a talib and a most deaf and a common and then like bringing in the commercial sound and, you know, and because he was associated with Jay-Z and Rockefeller and like all of those guys, you know, he just had something that nobody else really had at that moment. So, you know, you get the start of Kanye with these first three albums and with each one of those first three albums, you know, it kind of builds on the next one. So by the time you get to late registration, Kanye's saying, Hey, I'm trying to do something that's more, or you know, or orchestral, right. Where like, I want to have, um, you know, like a totally different sound. I want hip hop to be high art because people didn't look at hip hop records as high art. They looked at it as just as some hood ish, you know, for lack of a better word, right? And he's like, no, I want this to be totally different. I'm going to get this dude, John Bryan, this white dude who made a soundtrack to a movie and he's going to come in and he's going to make hip hop high art now. We're going to have the violins, we're going to do all of this. And then we get to the graduation album and he says, you know, one of the songs, uh, Big Brother, the last song on that album, you know, he starts off by saying stadium status, meaning that when he comes in to make that album, you know, he's trying to make nothing but anthems for like stadiums. Because Michael Jackson, and I have a whole chapter in the book talking about Kanye's love for Michael Jackson. Michael Jackson was like that first black artist to be a stadium artist where he could literally go on like these big stadiums, Wembley Stadium, wherever. The same way a Bruce Springsteen or a YouTube or a Rolling Stones could, these white artists. And he could sell them out worldwide. So Kanye, with graduation, one of the songs that could play in like those huge stadiums, right? Just the way Michael Jackson did, you know. And then we see a shift from Kanye's sound from that from that college sound to the 808s, you know, 808s and Heartbreak, where he's singing on Auto Tune. And he had used Auto Tune, you know, when it's from the very beginning. Actually, if you listen to College Dropout, he uses it on that album. But he does a full album with Auto Tune for 808s, and that's so pivotal. And I say this in the book because without that shift of the sound and also without Kanye really embracing, you know, his um, sensitivity, you know, and emotional and his vulnerability, like without really embracing that, you know, you may not get a so far gone. Right. Which is Drake's classic mixtape. You know, you may not get a Travis Scott. You may not get all of the rappers like this dominant sound we hear in the music today. You may not get that without Kanye. And I'm not trying to say that Kanye was the first and only person to do this because you had other rappers who were doing it, but because he was such a big artist by that point, you know, it hit a little differently, you know, and it really became a big trend. And then, you know, Kanye's music continues to shift 
you know, throughout the years since then, right? So, you know, that's Kanye as the artist. And, you know, you talk about Kanye's accolades. This is what I wanted to bring up earlier. Kanye, you know, sold over 21 million albums worldwide. He has over 100 million digital downloads worldwide. Nine number one albums on the Billboard Hot 200 chart for albums. In terms of Grammys, um, the Grammys, I haven't seen the list of nominees yet. I know Kendrick Lamar and Beyonce are at the top of like nominees for this year. But the 2022, 2022 Grammy nominations came out earlier this morning. So Kanye, I don't know if he was nominated for anything this year, but as of last year, Kanye has 70 Grammy nominations, which is staggering. That's like Quincy Jones type numbers, right? Kanye has 22 Grammy wins, right? Which is also staggering. That's, you know, you're talking like Jay-Z numbers or Beyonce numbers, right? Um, you know, he received the Video Vanguard Award from, from MTV. They used to call it the Michael Jackson Award, and then they changed the name because of the, you know, scandals with Michael Jackson. But that's the highest honor from MTV, and that's for, like, making groundbreaking music videos. And, you know, that's something Kanye got from Michael Jackson because Michael's videos a lot of times really were, like, mini movies. And he would have people like Martin Scorsese, the same guy who made uh, Goodfellas, Right. Come in and make, you know, these many movies for his videos. Right. So Kanye took that from Michael. So that's just him purely when you're talking from the music and even, you know, what he's done more recently with gospel music. Right. In the Sunday service, and you know, trying to make gospel music more mainstream. Then you start talking about Kanye West from a fashion design, you know, and an entrepreneur. You know, he's lost a lot of money. We know from the recent scandal with the anti-Semitic remarks, but prior to all of that, you know, Kanye was the second wealthiest black man in America. He would always say, well, I'm the wealthiest, which was actually inaccurate because uh, he was number two. But, you know, he was the second wealthiest black man in America. He had a net worth somewhere between one point five and three three billion dollars. And a lot of that was coming from what he was doing with Adidas and Yeezy um, and, and just, you know, being that creative and he won sneaker of the year, his sneakers. Uh, I mean, they're still really popular. I walk around my college campus where I teach and, you know, you'll see a bunch of students walking around in the Yeezy slides, the Yeezy foam runners. They used to do the three fifties uh, before, and they were competing with the Michael Jordan sneakers with the Jordan ones and the pattern level 11s. And I'm a sneakerhead, So like I could talk sneakers all day, but like, you know, like his design, really had him to the point where not only did he have shoe of the year and he had the top sales, but like it was where you had Harvard University School of Business inviting Kanye West to come speak. So and you could pull it up online where you could see Kanye with Kim Kardashian, you know, his then wife and the late virtual Abloh talking about sneaker design and what that means. Right. Um, you had Kanye speaking overseas in Oxford, like he sold out um, an auditorium there in Oxford in like a matter of minutes. And this was like the most anticipated speech at that at that particular um, location in years. Right. You know, this was back in the day. Right. When this happened, Kanye received an honorary doctorate degree. Right. A lot of people don't know that he got a degree. So, you know, Kanye has touched so many different things where you're talking music, where you're talking fashion, whether, you know, people want to hear him speak, you know, on fashion, on, on politics, just in general. I mean, the dude ran for president. Somehow we got 60,000 votes. Somehow he ended up on 13 different ballots, which is ridiculous to me. 
But I mean, he did. So those are just like a few things as to why Kanye, you know, why he matters and why, as I say in the book, you know, this is the guy who presidents have talked about. Obama famously called him a jackass. And then that made, you know, world news. He, you know, we seen with Donald Trump. Um, I mean, and, you know, I could go on and on because I wrote the book. But, yeah, I mean, there's a reason why, like when he speaks, like it, it people just listen. I mean, you know, and we, we respect people who are successful. Kanye is very successful. Most people, you know, will say he's some type of a genius, you know, musically, you know, maybe maybe fashion. Um, outside of that, I won't say he's a genius. But in those areas, you know, a lot of people will say he's a genius. So because of that, because of his influence, because of his wealth, um, you know, being a billionaire does carry a lot of weight because of his voice, because he's always been someone who's never been afraid to really speak out. You know, his mom said she wanted him to be like Muhammad Ali when he was a kid. So I think he really took that to heart. You know, like, let me just say whatever's on my mind, whether I'm right, whether I'm wrong, whether whether I've actually done the research before I start running my mouth. Yeah, like, <laughs> like that's, yeah. that's, you know, and that's the thing that like everything you're saying, Dr. Wright is, is, is so on point, you know, you're not missing a beat when it comes to that. Like, for example, when you mentioned get rich or die trying, I argue that get rich or die trying and college dropout are probably two of the most important albums in hip hop, like important. Mm-hmm because of where you stood on that line and what they did. And especially later on when they had that matchup, because I truly feel when Kanye outsold 50 Cent in his prime, that really shifted the guard and it gave a lot of validation to all of those that were influenced by him. But in your book in particular, you know, you talk about when it comes to black celebrities, them kind of being, I don't want to say victim, but being under the white gaze, Mm. right? You mentioned about the white gaze, but Mm. it seems like also too, with Kanye, he has an infatuation with the white gays himself, with the White Lives Matter, you know, when it comes to, you know, his infatuation with Donald Trump. And he's always mentioning like Walt Disney's is always the rich white men mm-hmm. of power that he seems to have this infatuation with life is. And he seems to always find a way to kind of manipulate. Like when he's up, it's it's cool. It's it's all wise. It's all white. Is um, white lives matter. It's all this other stuff. When he's down, on a sudden, it's the black man that needs help. You know, when you see that as someone who has you know wrote about him, whatever, is that black celebrity going too far? I just think Kanye's a walking contradiction. You know, like I think he's a walking contradiction. I always say like he's the ultimate contrarian. If we say it's it's dark outside, he's going to say it's sunny. If we say we're pro-Obama, he wants to be pro-Trump. I mean, yeah, he's a, he's a contrarian, number one, but he's also a walking contradiction because, you know, just like you said, a lot of times he'll preach, you know, the black man's being held down, but then at the same time he'll turn around and then support the same groups or the same people that, you know, are somewhat benefiting from that or, or playing a role in that, right? He'll talk about, if you look at his earlier projects, you know, college dropout, right? And he talked about his mom being involved in the civil rights movement. And you know, he talked about his dad being a Black Panther or even a later album like um, My Dark Twisted Fantasy, Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy or Yeezus, you know, when he's got songs like New Slaves and even Blood on the Leaves, which is, you know, taken from the Billie Holiday slash Nina Simone song, Strange Fruit. Um, I mean, he's definitely playing that so-called race card, right? And talking about what it's like to be uh, uh, an oppressed black person, right? But then, you know, you see him now, right, with Candace Owens, wearing the 
MAGA hat, wearing the White Lives Matter, saying that, hey, I don't even like any like he did an interview with WGCI, which is a popular radio station out in Chicago. And the young host on there, Kendra G, you know, she's talking about my people, my people. And like when you, you know, we saw you with the MAGA hat and you said slavery was a choice for black people. That really hurt us, Kanye, because, you know, my people, blah, blah, blah. And Kanye's like, hey, you know, I would appreciate it if you just said like all people like, you know, and she had to explain to him that, well, I'm a black woman in Chicago and I represent and I speak for those people, the black community. So that's why it's important that I say my people and Kanye would have been doing just that, just like she says, you know, back in the day, whereas now we see him just saying, well, I want to be about all people. But like you said, even now, even though he's been pro-Trump, you know, pro-conservative, all lives matter, you know, he, he'll still from time to time come back and say, well, you see how they're doing us as black people. I mean, you could even look at this current situation with the, uh, well, well, two examples. One, the fashion industry, like he's always talked about, like people looking down on him because they see him just as a rapper. But then he's also said like well, rapper is really just a code word or a euphemism for the N word, right? And again, you know, by saying that you're playing the race car by doing that, but also with the anti-Semitic stuff right now, where he's talking about the Jews control Hollywood, the Jews control the industry, the music industry, the Jews don't want us to, you know, like it, it, it comes back to like this long debate, very controversial debate. And I know we're out of time, so we can't get into it, but like this long debate, you know, within African-American community, you know, often feud by the nation of Islam by Minister Louis Farrakhan talking about how the Jews have, you know, oppressed black people. And, you know, we see it with this Kyrie Irving stuff now. And Farrakhan even did like an hour long um, speech, which is now on YouTube, where he's defending Kanye and Kyrie and talking about anti-Semitism and talking about the Jews and black people and, and all of that. So my point is, like, even by Kanye going to this whole anti-Semitic wave that he's been on lately, it's still tapping into something from the black community and you'll have some black people who will hear that because they know it from Farrakhan. They know it from the Nation of Islam. They know it from the documentary Hebrews and Negroes that Kyrie Irving referenced. You know, they got him in hot water. And they'll say, hey, Kanye's right. I agree with what Kanye is saying. Dave Chappelle was on SNL the other night and he was talking about the whole thing about, well, you know, black people and Jews. And some folks will hear that and then they'll be like, yeah, OK, we get you, Kanye. We support you. But at the same time, like you said, Kanye's still over here with Candace Owens. He's still over here, probably, you know, going to support Donald Trump, you know, if, if he doesn't run for president himself in 2024. Right. So that's why I say Kanye's like really this walking contradiction. And I mean, we're talking, you know, his stance on black issues, but I mean, it's everything. I mean, his stance on religion and Christianity and he's doing the Sunday service and the gospel choir, yet he's you know, kind of doing what he was doing prior to being on that whole gospel wave and getting saved again. And I mean, he says, you know, once he gets on it, he'll, he'll leave you for a white girl, you know, right. Talking about the brother and gold diggers, but then he married Kim. And then when they got divorced, we see him mostly with white women. I mean, he's had a few sisters, but still has been mostly white women. So, you know, he's supposed to be a mental health advocate yet. He always says, I don't use my medicine. You know, he, now he wants to deny his bipolar, you know, uh, diagnosis. 
So, yeah, Kanye is really just this walking, you know, contradiction. And unfortunately, the bad part about it is to wrap all of this up, you know, as a celebrity, as you stated in the beginning, he carries so much weight. He carries so much influence. And that's when it when it's problematic, because you do have a lot of people who will listen to him and he might be giving them the wrong message. Like J. Cole says, false prophet. He might be giving them the wrong message to follow. And you have people, maybe not so much here in America, but you have people. I did an interview with a young lady from Paris a few days ago. You have folks overseas in other countries who are still looking at these celebrities here in America, like a Kanye West. And, you know, that's an image that some of those folks may have of the African-American celebrity or black people in general. And again, that could be very problematic <laughs> if you're not represented as right, you know? Yo, Dr. Joshua, I have to give you a lot of credit because this is the first Kanye West conversation I've had where my head didn't hurt within 30 <laughs> seconds. You were able to definitely articulate a lot of points and you definitely made a strong point about why your book you know, is necessary. So I much appreciate you for coming on. Is there any way we can follow, support you, any social media that you want to give out before we go? Yes, 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 yes. So I am I'm on social media. I'm not as as on it as I should be uh for what i do but i do have social media links and i do have a website for anybody who wants to purchase the book the book is available on a lot of different platforms you could find it on amazon i know everybody doesn't like amazon but you can find it there you could find it at walmart you can find it at target barnes and noble it's at some of the the smaller local bookstore chains it's also at a number of libraries a number of university libraries have it as well as some of the public libraries. So you could definitely find the book in different places and you could buy it directly from the publisher, McFarland Books. And then in terms of social media, I'm on Instagram. It's JK Wright 1492. I'm on Twitter at, and Twitter's at Joshua K Wright. I have a website as well. So on the website, you'll be able to find, um, information about the book you'll be able to find information about another book that i wrote a few years ago and there's information on there as well on my um my podcast series and another radio series that i used to host as well so the website is drjoshkwright.com so again that's all of all of my all of my information that people want to find me and if they want to find the book much appreciated, Doctor. Please feel free to come back again because I'm pretty sure as Kanye keep going, we're going to still need somebody of a sound mind to come give us some sort of <laughs> educational person from really read books explanation on this. So please understand that this is not just a one stop. You know, feel free to come back, you know, hit us up. Let us know if there's something you want to point out, another book, anything like that that you want to come on here and talk about. This is always your home. Thank oh. you very much. Hey, I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. No doubt. No doubt. That's it. That's another episode. I appreciate it. I feel like my blackness has been elevated. I'm pretty sure Dr. Joshua K. Wright, his blackness has been elevated. Much appreciate you. As usual, you can find me on all social media platforms at J. Hall Society. As usual, be blessed, be successful, and we will talk to you soon. We ghosts. The History of Being Black is hosted by Jay Hall, executive producer Ken Johnson. Find the History of Being Black podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Odyssey, Amazon Music, or where you get your podcasts. 
Find the History of Being Black podcast on IG at the History of Being Black. Follow the Mean O'Line Media Podcast Network on IG at Mean O'Line Media. Get the Mean O'Line Media app in the App Store or on Google Play. The History of Being Black podcast is a Mean O'Line Media production.